pool sceners, it's Jim coming at you for this week. We are going to open up the pool scene vault, taking it all the way back to episode number four on June 25th, 2020. We are going to do a special edition remaster of the wizard so what is a special edition remaster we did it with our very first episode armageddon we did it with episode two dazed and confused this week i'm gonna go back in clean up the audio add some things add a little bit more special content so just a refresh this is before we had a studio we were in my living room in the middle of june height of the pandemic window shut one 100 degrees in the middle of summer recording this episode of the podcast back then different format kind of you know we evolve over the past three years and as we are approaching 200 episodes always acknowledge where you came from always acknowledge the past so here is the special edition remaster of the one hour and 30 minute nintendo super mario brothers 3 commercial movie fred savage luke edwards Jenny Lewis, The Wizard. No Ninja Gaiden. It's Podcast Armageddon, but we don't have $50,000 to give away. Welcome to the Pool Scene Podcast. I, as always, am Kevin Bradway, and I've got Jim Sabella with me. Jim, I know you're excited for this one. You're wearing your power glove. You've been sleeping in it for a week. How are you today, Jim? California. Yeah, I, I want to go to We all want to go to California. Oh, I cannot wait. This is one of these movies where it came out when we were kids and it was one big eye candy video game movie, but reanalyzing this movie, how dark yes. this movie is. So this week we will be discussing the 100 minute Nintendo commercial from 1989 called The Wizard, or as we like to say, The Wizard. Wizard. Except in between masturbatory shots of Power Glass and Mario 3. <laughs> the power glove for your Nintendo entertainment system. Now you and the games are one. Everything else is child's play. There's some grim subtext to this film. Jim, before we talk about that, how about you tell us how we were living in 1989? This movie did come out in December of 1989, the 15th, so nine days before Christmas Eve. Budget of this was $6 million. Box office was $14.3 million. It's so bad. Other big events that were happening in 1989, the Cold War was declared over by President Bush and Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev. We invaded Panama, but did not take out Noriega. Nikolai Ceausescu was toppled and executed on Romanian television. We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel was the number one song in America for this week. Eisenhower vaccine, England's got a new queen. Marciano, Liberace, satire, goodbye. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight. 
and the number one movie at the box office, the Christmas staple movie starring Chevy Chase, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Nice. That's that's excellent. So this movie was kind of seen as a flop at the box office, but making $14 million on a $6 million budget is not bad. Yeah, but depending on what location shots were, like some of the scenes in this movie, they're very hard to explain. Like, how was it possible? The cast. But I'm pretty sure most of this cast, they probably could have got for pittance, but there were some good names in this movie. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, normally we watch these movies directly before we record just to keep it fresh in our mind. And most of these movies are things we've seen multiple times. But I will say that I struggled with this movie to write a coherent plot summary. It's pretty tough. It's all over the place. There's a lot of things that are introduced that aren't resolved. And the main theme is is pretty hard. So I had a hard time writing the plot summary, but let me get into it. Let me let me tell you what I came up with. He's headed for the video championship. <laughs> this guy. Jimmy Woods lives with his mother and stepfather, and he suffers from what they call PTSD since the drowning death of his twin sister Jennifer two years prior. Jimmy's older half-brothers, Nick and Corey, live with their dad. Jennifer's drowning led to the, to the divorce that keeps them separate. When their mom decides to commit Jimmy to a mental institution, Corey intercepts Jimmy, they pick up a female drifter their age along the way, and they head out on foot towards LA for video Armageddon with a $50,000 prize. I have failed to mention that Jimmy happens to be a video game savant, all while a race ensues to find them between a bounty hunter and the duo of their dad and brother. This movie has so many, so many twists. This movie in its premise probably could not be made today without some controversy involved because there is a lot of very borderline sexual predatory type shit going on with Uncle Putnam, yes. if you will. Yeah, so a little bit difficult to explain as far as what exactly the plot is, but in a way you can think of it as a child's version of Rain Man. It's exactly what it was. It came out a year earlier. I'll ask you this question now. What what do you think the demographic is for this movie? Well, reading the background for this, Nintendo did not have much of a role in this movie, but how dark it is, it should be more like 18 to 34. This seemed to happen a lot in like the 80s and 90s where a movie that's targeted for children it's like they they gave it this subplot that also targeted towards adults so it's super weird I, I can say that as a five or a six year old I saw this as Nintendo porn because I remember seeing this movie when I was a what, kid I was born in 1983 I remember seeing it as a five or six year old and just thinking wow Nintendo you know Rad Racer Mario 3 Mario 2 Ninja Turtles arcade cabs that's what I saw I didn't really pay attention to this heavy family dynamic and in thinking about one parent taking an initiative to institutionalize the child while the other parent feels as though they have no control over that choice it seems to be more of like the subject matter of like a Noah Baumbach movie rather than a children's movie that's why I'm I'm not sure what this movie has a lot of unanswered questions like why in God's name was it part of their like divorce agreement that Sam could not have any association with Jimmy he just seems to be disassociated like he they're gonna put him in a home daddy does doesn't seem to give a crap whatsoever. I mean, one of that's definitely one of the issues that Corey and his brother both seem to be upset at their dad because he doesn't seem to care that their other brother is going to be institutionalized. He just does it. He seems to kind of wash his hands and say, there's nothing I can do about it. Over that fight over the burnt casserole that he decided to make that day. Is that something original, dad? I'm trying to cook you guys a decent meal. You're living off burgers and pizza. Cannot possibly belong to one of the four major food groups. 
It's a casserole, genius. Doesn't it look like a casserole? Huh? Yeah, there's there's definitely an introduced storyline that's never resolved where Christian Slater's character and Bo Burgess' character just don't connect or see eye to eye. Jennifer was a kick, huh? She and Jimmy together, they both go nuts. Oh, I'm tired, Nick. It's late. What the hell am I doing here? Sleeping with my father in some dump on the highway. Well, you don't want me here. Jesus, we can't even talk to each other. You're in your underwear. I can't believe it. I cannot even speak to my own father. Mr. Cheapskate, he gets us a room that does not even have double beds. Oh, come on. I got to get some sleep. Some sleep. You really play this thing, huh? That's right. What's that one called? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Doesn't take much intelligence to play that game, does it? You should know. There's a lot of stuff in this movie that's just kind of like hinted at, but never really explored enough, which leads me to my next point. This movie's original cut, according to the director, was two and a half hours long. I do want to see that two and a half hour cut because I think this would explain a lot of the plot holes in this movie. It has to. I don't know that it does. For instance, let's jump to the end of the movie. How does that happen? How does it end up ending? Does Haley get adopted by them? They drop her off at Boat World with no parents and a gambling addicted mom who apparently has not been in the picture for a very long time. Well, before we go into too many specific details, let's there's let's, a lot, folks. Let's at least introduce the characters to you. So we have Fred Savage, the late 80s, early 90s darling who is in everything. He plays Corey Woods. And I will say seeing the poster and the promotional stuff to this movie, you would think that Fred Savage was the main character, the wizard per se. But no, it was Luke Edwards as Jimmy Woods, who is the wizard. Corey Woods is just Jimmy's brother, who's played by Fred Savage. Zelda. Zelda. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's like it's like the adventures of Link. He has to find Zelda. You have to find a house. Same difference. Boy, is that sexist? It's not sexist. It's romantic. I know what you were gonna do, and you could just forget about it. There is no way I am not kissing a boy. A girl, maybe? smart ass. At the time, Fred Savage is known for the Wonder Years, man. Wonder Years is a number one TV show. This movie would not have been that successful. Not that it was super successful. It basically made a cult following. But without Fred Savage in that movie, like Christian Slater's just kicking off the time. The early 90s is when Christian Slater really hits his peak. People know who Bo Bridges is. But yeah. Yeah, Christian Slater played Nick Woods. He Christian Slater had made Legend of Billie Jean and Heathers and some other things. But this predated Gleaming the Cube, Pump Up the Volume, Young Guns 2 and some others. Bo Bridges had been in everything. I want to mention Jenny Lewis as Haley Brooks, which is the female drifter they picked up that we mentioned. Jenny Lewis is honestly currently one of the best living singer-songwriters in the world. She had fully transitioned from acting to singing and songwriting. She was the singer of legendary indie rock band Rilo Kiley.
They released four al- excellent albums, I will say. I don't know about Under the Blacklight as much, but the other three albums were fantastic. Then she made an, an album with the Watson Twins, which I listened to a ton, and then that started her solo career. She's big on the festival circuits, you know, your Bonnaroos and things that aren't happening this year due to the coronavirus. She plays a 12 or a 13-year-old girl, lives in Reno. She has a whole backstory about Ultimate her. latchkey kid. Yeah. Like, there's no parents whatsoever. She's a very independent woman yes. at her age. Yeah, I mean, you, you find out more details about that later in the movie, but she's also friends with truck drivers and has a... Spanky! A good idea of the trucker's code. Haley, are you sure about these guys? Uh, don't you worry about them. I'm telling you, I know truckers. They got a code. So you've got uh, the guy who plays Putnam, Will Seltzer, who's the bounty hunter. Frank McRae is Spanky. He's her truck driver friend. You got Tobey Maguire who shows up as Goon. He's one of uh, Lucas's no friends. No lines. <laughs> Video He's just standing there. It looks like they just picked him out of Universal Studios. I, I love that here. shot. There's like one shot in front of Video Armageddon at Universal Studios where they're basically decked out all in like Vision Streetwear. They look like the Bones Brigade. It's the prototypical late 80s, early 90s wear. And then you have my dude, Lee Ehrenberg, as Armageddon Registrar. He's amazing. So, Jim, which actor or actress gives the best performance? For me, by far, my standout MVP would have to be Bo Bridges as Sam Woods. You look at the disconnect at that very beginning of the movie. He's not getting along with his son, Corey. He's not getting along with his son, Nick. There's this big hang-up. He seems to want Nick to be the heir apparent to his business Woods landscaping, but during this one fight that we overhear that he's not happy about his drinking. He's staying out all times of the night. That might be, you know, connected to Jennifer drowning and Jimmy being institutionalized. But throughout this whole movie, the road trip to California from Utah, Nick and Sam drive together. They go on this crazy road trip in which they're using his truck as a weapon and shovels for weapon to hurt Putnam to stop him from getting Jimmy. But between the beginning and the end, Bo Bridges is learning how to play video games. He's connecting with Nick, and by the time they get the video Armageddon, Nick even says, this guy's a changed man. Mine's Sam Woods. I can't say that Bo Bridges is my MVP because of how he plays video games. (laughs) If you watch this movie or if you've watched it in in anticipation of this episode, keep an eye out for how Bo Bridges plays the video games. I mean, you've got your serious video game players who will lean forward in a seat when things get good or they'll kind of tilt the controller on a racing game. But Sam Woods or Bo Bridges is Sam Woods. He like flails all over the place. He's like button mashing and twisting and turning and jumping. And now we would say at this time, Bo Bridges is probably mid 40s in this movie would we say yeah probably at this time my dad was roughly he was early 40s when i would see him play a video game it was the exact same way for some reason it was always portrayed that older people don't get what the hell's going on so they got to overemphasize everything on a small nes controller it was over the top and it's like a switch plus we'll mention it more later on in logic a lot of things don't make sense when it comes to how any of them within the movie operate a video game or how to do it properly yeah it's odd let's go ahead let's find out which scenes made a splash my number one scene the one that stands out is you know they're hitchhiking they're on foot going across the country to get to california and they gain money they're hustling people in these arcades you know this one kid chimes in and says well you guys got to play lucas he's good but he never beat lucas lucas nobody's better than lucas lucas is awesome oh really 
And uh, where might we find this, Lucas? So they go and find Lucas, who introduces the power glove. I love the power glove. It's so bad. And that's, you know, he plays Rad Racer and he's shown using the Power Glove and it doesn't work the way that the Power Glove actually works. And a lot of people thought it was Nintendo that wanted to introduce the Power Glove in the movie. But when we were doing our show research for the episode, Nintendo had no idea or didn't ask them to promote the Power Glove and completely shows why Nintendo probably shook their head at how they use the Power Glove. Because if anybody who's anybody who's a game like Kevin or I have the power glove. I have it right next to me. The damn thing never worked properly. No. There's so many damn buttons and keys on this thing, which there's a documentary on Prime, which you guys should check out all about the power glove. People nowadays have used the power glove to make music now. It's really cool. But the power glove in that scene is absolutely atrocious. He has his own separate suitcase for it with his name on it with a foam inset. It's like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? And, and this is a good time to mention, we were trying to figure out where exactly like Lucas's home base is and it's some sort of bar like this is a Lucas probably 15 it's like a roadside diner yeah and he's like 15 years old and he just hangs out all day at this roadside diner kind of wait like taking on all comers and he just hooks up his Nintendo and I'm starting to think that maybe his mom might be one of the waitresses in that diner which would be the only explanation as to why they let him hang out play video games there sit at the counter that's got to be the only reason why that's the only reason I'm thinking two and a half hour cut to find out. I hope it's out there. What's the first scene you want to mention? Okay, for me is a little bit later on in the movie. They realize Lucas knows all 97 NES games. And when Jimmy met Lucas with the power glove thing, Jimmy ran away. He was scared. He didn't know how to counter Lucas's know-how, his mastery of the NES. On their way to Los Angeles, Haley takes it upon herself to let's get Jimmy acclimated with all these games. So they get a hotel with the money that Spanky won via Haley at the casino. We'll talk about that later in Logic because it doesn't make sense. Yeah, he hits on a hard eight. He hits on a hard eight on craps. Somehow at her age, she knows how to play craps. Yeah. And they let her in a casino. Whatever. I digress. In that hotel room, she decides I'm going to call the Nintendo tip line and he's going to learn all these games. So they go to a shot where you see the typical late 80s, 90s guys in their late teens, early 20s working for a Nintendo tip line. You see binders full of tips and she calls and says Nintendo game playing this is Rick how can I help you hi my name is Haley and I've got a wizard who's going all the way to the championships in Los Angeles is that so all I need is a little help okay let's start with Simon's Quest Okay, now where exactly are you? But you just hear about all these tips and it's a montage. Jimmy's standing in front of Play Choice 10, playing Turtles, playing Ninja Gaiden, playing all these games. And that stuck out. That was porn for me. Could you see all these games yeah. and you go, for me, I'm, I'm not going to deny the fact that I wasn't spoiled. My mom saw this movie with me as a kid and she saw those games and I saw the look of dread on her face because that Christmas, I got those games. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. And I learned so much from just the little scenes yeah, in when, that. When we, when we watched this, I said, I want to work there. 
because it's just you know a bunch of dudes feet kicked up binders full of information about these games you could call in and find out there's a whole cool story about the people who worked there they had test systems test cartridges you know they're highly collectible they'd be bright yellow but that's a, a story for another day about working at the uh, Nintendo and and I want to talk about that scene with the Nintendo hotline later in the logic portion because there are a lot of things to bring up about that entire scene I just sense that a lot of those guys after a while really resented Nintendo and video games they just turned their way off of it oh, I guarantee it. a lighthearted scene that to me is definitely something I want to talk about is the registrar at the video Armageddon so Haley <laughs> and, and yeah and Corey and uh, Jimmy pull up and they kind of are like woods <laughs> Good. Yeah, name's Jimmy Woods. Woods! Jimmy Woods! What game is it? What game are they playing? Well, for the prelims, we're playing Ninja Gaiden. Hey! He knows Ninja Gaiden. We're in. It's great. You're in. Fantastic. Pin the stew is back and hustle it on in there. You're blowing it. You're late. Move it! Move it! Move it! And this guy, it's like he, I don't know what he's doing. He's, he's trying to play up like an Oscar winning performance for a five second scene. And they ask him, you know, what game are we playing? And he goes, Ninja Gaiden. And he's, Hi! yeah, he's over the top. It's an awesome scene. I don't know why the guy, you know, went so out of his way to, to act like that. But it's, it's amazing. I love that. You know scene. what that scene seems like? They were running low on money and running low on time. And they're just like, do this scene real quick. And he just goes ape shit with it. And they said, fine, roll it, cut. We're good. This guy's like sort of doing, if you know Joe Piscopo, it's sort of like a like a budget Joe Piscopo impression <laughs> that he's doing. And it's it's great. It's like these kids are probably walking up super duper nervous to be entering this tournament and having to play in front of all these people. Props to this guy for easing the nerves. Okay, my next one, once again, I'm going to stick to the games here because that's my know-how. That's my wheelhouse. When Jimmy plays Double Dragon, when they're trying to get a bus ticket to Los Angeles that they find out, they thought it was probably going to be $27. It was $227. Corey is like, Jimmy, go play this game. Here's a quarter. So he starts playing Double Dragon and somehow he gets 50,000 points in Double Dragon in 40 seconds, which is virtually impossible. That can't be happening. 50,000? You got 50,000 on Double Dragon? However, Haley is sitting right there and watches this all go down. So they decide, Haley takes him in the back and she said, oh, my brother can kick your butt and let's put some money up on it. He's like, I'll $6.70. It's the bus ticket to St. George, Utah, because all they have are $27 in cash. She's like, I don't have $6.70. Well, they bet a bus ticket to St. George, Utah. And of course, long way around, Jimmy beats Haley almost immediately, tops her score in like 10 seconds, which is impossible. But this scene alone establishes the fact that Jimmy is a savant when it comes to video games. Nobody knew what kind of wizard he actually was in video games until this very scene that he's pulling these records completely out of his ass, willy-nilly, and they're virtually impossible records, but this was the start of the trip to video yeah, this, Armageddon. This, this kicks the whole thing off. I mean, Haley, you know, her mom's a gambling addict, so she kind of, I think, sees the dollar signs and somehow pulls out a magazine and video Armageddon $50,000 prize. And, and speaking of being a savant and video games. How about the first time that we see Mario 3? So I give you Super Mario Brothers 3! (laughs) 
at Video Armageddon, the screen comes up. It's Mario 3. This was the introduction to the United States for Mario 3. It had already come out in Japan, but in the United States, it, this predated, what, two months? It came out in April of 88 in Japan. It came out here in February of 90. Mario! 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 was as Super Mario Brothers 3 from Nintendo. Now you're playing with power. Yeah, so this movie came out in 89, so it predated Mario 3 as far as when it was available to purchase. But being a savant, Jimmy, and again, we'll talk about this later, but Jimmy and Lucas and the girl, is her name Maureen, I think? I don't remember. Maura Grissom. Yeah, Maura Grissom, Lucas, and Jimmy are in the finals of Video Armageddon, and somehow, despite never hearing of this game, playing it, or anything, they know so much about how to play. It's so strange. There is, you could go logic on that final championship run for an hour on this podcast alone. There's so many falsities and inconsistencies in that championship. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely is. You have more scenes to talk about? Well, it attaches to the double dragon thing. Well, they go on to their next stop after they arrive in St. George, Utah after Jimmy hustles Haley. Haley decides, I'm going to come along because apparently she has no family anymore. She's a latchkey kid. She'll just tag along for the ride. So they go to this diner in which they sit down at a booth and they they have Ninja Gaiden. They must have a Play Choice 10 inside the table, which I've never seen before. It's not a cocktail table, regular table. He's getting all these amazing scores. And Ninja Gaiden said he was never hit when the camera clearly shows on the game. He was hit at least twice. But Haley's like, Eureka, I have an idea. She runs over to a gaming magazine and she opens it up and it says Video Armageddon winning for $50,000. Yeah. And she realizes, hey, we could go all the way to Los Angeles and win this money. I got it. You want to go to California and you want to prove that Jimmy doesn't belong in a home. Do you think they put him in a home after he won this? A video game contest. Haley, he's, he's what? Too crazy? Too stupid? He's sure not the genius you are trying to get to California on 27 bucks. You don't believe in him yourself. What's this matter to you anyway? It's a business deal. If I can get you to California and he wins, we split the money. Do you think I'd hang around a pair like you for my health? Jimmy wins, spoiler alert, but Jimmy wins Video Armageddon, improbably, because there's some skepticism on my part that he, final push, he gets like 4,000 points in one second. But beyond that, the $50,000, they never resolve it. They never talk about who takes the money if they split it like eight ways between both families and Haley. It's just, it's odd. This whole movie is an unresolved issue. The whole premise of him wanting to go to California is because he has a lunchbox in the movie is full of pictures of him and his sister, his family, his sister's little shoes. And he basically wants to leave it at a dinosaur, like one of those dinosaurs where you can climb up into like a big statuette type dinosaur and leave the lunchbox there as a memorial to her because like the, uh, that was the last time they were all happy as a family. It's all of us. He was taken here. Jimmy. Jimmy, this is California. I guess 
just wanted to leave her in a place where she was happy. Guess he wanted to say goodbye. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yes. Several movies. If, if you drive from here in Ohio, where we're at, to Nashville, on that trip, there's like some sort of dinosaur statue park. So these things are out there. That's why he only pretty much says California throughout this movie. I've got two more. One, the impromptu demolition derby between the Woods family and the bounty hunter. That son of a bitch! Oh, Jesus. What the hell are you doing? Putnam for some reason like improbably the Putnam and the Woods family happen to be both driving to find Jimmy along like to see where they've ran off to they're always in the same place at the same time but in this scene it's like Mr. Woods decides he's gonna ram Putnam's car to try and stop him he acts like he has a bulletproof car yeah and he rams him a couple times I mean there's multiple scenes where they do this you know he throws a shovel like a javelin you know they hit each other's cars it's pretty funny there's like an old guy sitting out in front of a, an old timey store and they're just like crashing their cars into each other in the street. Pretty funny. And then finally, I will say the final thing that I want to discuss is all those scenes are pretty cheery. We talked a lot about Nintendo. We talked a lot about, you know, demolition derbies. Honestly, is a pretty dark movie. The subtext, like all these these issues are super dark. It's, it's weird for a, a movie that's targeted and that's supposed to be a Nintendo commercial, but is finding out where Haley lives. Because Haley, again, hypes up that her mom is the showgirl and that, you know, her dad like travels on business or whatever it is, and that she's, you know, this well-off child. But in a time of need where they need somewhere to stay, they go to Haley's house and finds out she lives at whatever Boat World is. Which is weird. It's called Boat World, out in the middle of the desert, no boats, and she lives in a rundown trailer that seems to be the only trailer around. Yeah, it's around. just like a remote trailer in the middle of a valley, just in the middle of nowhere is where Haley lives. You know, she has to admit that her mom is actually has a huge gambling problem and her dad's not there. I know how I told you I lived in some great place, so don't be rubbing it in. I didn't say anything. It ain't my fault. And it ain't my dad's. My mom. She had this little problem. That's how I learned about craps. I thought maybe when my my dad got home tomorrow night from work. We'd have won. Call him up from LA and say, Dad, guess what? You can buy a house now. Jeez, listen to me, I even sound like a dork. And she literally is just free to, to travel the world and hang out with truck drivers or whatever. It's really pretty sad. She is the most adult 13 to 15 year old in perhaps the history of modern civilization. How this girl gets around hopping two states from home is quite incredible. Yes, absolutely. So on that note, before we jump into more of the sad stuff in the logic portion of this podcast, why don't we go ahead and take our pool check? Pool check! Pool check! 
as we've discussed every week, but we'll do it again this week, we'll tell you that we cover the top five music videos each for the year of the movie we covered. This week, The Wizard 1989. And I will say, like last week where we did Dirty Dancing, it was 1987. To me, this is like peak music video time. This is MTV launch 1981. You've got the first few years of videos just being live performance type stuff. And it, it took a while before we really got into the groove of what big budget music videos could be. Every single week I say, you know, I had a hard time narrowing it to five. And every week I think it's harder than the last. I had a hard time narrowing my list of five videos. We're going into the 90s transitional phase of music. You can kind of hint upon it. Looking just at the top 100 music videos of this year, you can see the paradigm shift as we're going into a different flow of music. We're starting to drop that 80s sound and now we're going into more 90s, maybe a little bit more message based, a little bit more up-tempo music and our top fives are slightly a bit different this week. What, so. do, you, what do you got at number five to start us off? At number five, we had big news this week. The possibility of Michael Keaton being in talks of returning to Batman. In 1989, Batman came out and in my opinion, Michael Keaton is still my favorite Batman and this is from Prince from the movie Batman, Bat Dance. It's crazy. This soundtrack is a whole Prince soundtrack. Yes. But this is the one I decided to pick. It's so good. There's Party Man on this. Yeah, there's a, there's a crazy video with a bunch of choreographed Batman dancers and choreographed Joker dancers and Prince has his face half painted like the Joker. Yeah, I'm pretty so sure it sort of looks yep. like Two-Face, but it's it's just it's a wild song, it's a wild video and it's so weird to think that this was something Prince was on board with. This is the way I look at it too. Prince was always a colorful character when it came to his outfits, when it came to his stage setup, when it came to even his music. This movie is a Tim Burton masterpiece when it comes to just flushes of color with dark tones and then you hear Prince's sound, his lyrics, his music. This whole soundtrack was basically a Prince soundtrack for a Batman movie that was a revival of Batman. You have to remember, this is the first time Batman has been back since Adam West in the 60s. So this is a 20 plus year revival. They went totally to task. I mean, Jack Nicholson was in the movie. Michael Keaton was in the movie. So many other good stars, Kim Basinger. And then you get Prince on top of it to do the soundtrack. Home run. Yeah. Speaking of Batman also, rest in peace, Joel Schumacher. You could never mistake a Joel Schumacher movie. Batman Forever is a great Batman movie. Now, I will admit, I've never seen Batman and Robin. I really don't want to. Three years later. But Batman Forever gets a lot of shit. Joel Schumacher did an amazing I, yeah, Batman I, movie. Val I mean, Kilmer was underrated. I mean, I don't want to talk too much. I don't want to debate Batman movies. But, I mean, you've got, you know, you've got your Christopher Nolan Batmans, which are awesome. I mean, great movies. You can't deny that. But at the end of the day, Batman's a comic book. You know, these are supposed to be fun, colorful, whimsical type movies. And Joel Schumacher made those types of Batman movies. And maybe someday again, we'll get that type of Batman movie or, you know, comic book movie in general, but you kind of have your Shazam. But anyway, that's a, that's a, on a different tangent. My number five was just a fun party video, house party type thing. And it was a B-52's Love Shack. And the only thing I really want to say about it. So we've got the part where they say, you're what? Yeah, it's Tin Roof Rusted. Yeah. I had absolutely no idea that that's what they said for the longest time. I thought it was like, I mean, I was a wrestling fan, so I thought it was like, and new. 
champion is what I thought they said. And I didn't know even once I knew it was tin roof rusted. I didn't know that meant pregnant. I don't know. Wait, it does? Yeah. Tin roof rusted means you're pregnant. That's, yeah. I've never heard that before. Yeah. Easily admit to, not really a B-52s fan. Never. Oh, I never crazy. liked that song or Rock Lobster. I didn't like Fred Schneider's voice. I love it. I hope oh. Fred Schneider comes on our podcast. <laughs> Get me number four. Number four. You can't go throughout the 80s into the early 90s without mentioning the king of pop himself, Michael Jackson, Smooth Criminal. Now this- That's too low. This music video- Number four is too low on this list for that. Whatever. It's my opinion. Music video is a masterpiece. I almost said a meisterpiece. This was part of so much pop culture, this video. It, it, It had a Pepsi commercial involved with it. Michael Jackson's Moonwalker, the video game and the arcade game were a part of this. This is a movie. I mean, it, yeah. was, it was uh, a 1988 movie called Moonwalker. And by the way, Disney Plus, why don't you put that up on Disney Plus? And put the videos from Captain EO yeah, up Captain on Captain EO, Plus. put Moonwalker on Disney Plus while you're at it. But that was such an iconic music video. It also had Pepsi crossover, yes. too. It's a great song. I mean, I can't really name. Well, that's not true. I can name a bad Michael Jackson song, and that's What's Up With You with Eddie Murphy, which is pretty damn horrible. But this video alone, just the outfits, the ambiance, the song, the dance. Annie, are you okay? Are you okay, Annie? I mean, come on then. Alien Ant Farm covered it, and this song got a resurgence again. I'll spill the beans. This was my number one this week. So Annie, are you okay? was actually written about a like a resuscitation doll, like a first aid resuscitation doll. This video was supposed to be a Western, and up until like the final stages of pre-production was a Western, and then Michael watched Godfather. And then after he watched Godfather, he said, no, I, w- I want to do that. I want to do a gangster video choreographed along with Shalomar, which was an 80s R&B group. It's fucking cool. Like this video, it's got... So the most iconic thing is it's got the lean, which in this video was done with cables. And we've all tried to do the lean in yeah. real life and have fallen on our asses for doing it. Well, it's it. physically impossible. Yeah. But in the video, they did it with cables. For his live show, he did it, but the way they did it was they put like a cuff in the stage and his shoe had like a clip so he would go to the spot on the stage, he would hook his shoe into the cuff and then he could lean, which isn't to say that anyone could do that because you still had to have incredible core strength to be able to lean down essentially and then pull yourself back up. Michael Jackson had that ability to make the impossible possible. I mean, look at the moonwalk itself. To this day, kids know what the moonwalk is. People tried doing that lean still to this day. He did the impossible. The only drawback I have with this video is a one minute section of this video where the music cuts out and Michael kind of just like makes these like moaning like animal noises. I don't know. It's incredibly awkward and it makes no sense. Yeah, it's just the music cuts out. Everybody's standing in a circle. Michael's like, you know, tipping his head up and down and just moaning. It's kind of weird. But nobody's ever going to say no to Michael Jackson at his peak. There's absolutely no way, shape or form. He could fart on a microphone and he'd be like, oh, my God, Michael, this is incredible. Absolutely. My number four, Millie Vanilli, girl, you know, it's true for like hours. I had this as my number one. Because I love Millie Vanilli unapologetically. I know it wasn't them singing. You don't have to point that out. Don't email me. Don't you know, tweet girl, at me. You know it's don't girl, tell you me know that. It's... Yes, I know it wasn't them singing. And you can read the sad story about essentially how these two guys were used and exploited. And then they were blackballed, even though it wasn't them. And the guy who did it to them, I think, is the same guy who founded like the Backstreet Boys. Lou Pearlman. Yes, Lou Pearlman. And he essentially made all this money off of 
of them and continue to have a career. And, you know, these guys took the fall for it. So basically about this video is the dancing. It's insane. It's mm-hmm. awesome. I love it. And the then, outfits. And then in between the dancing, which is, you know, music video dancing in front of a screen, nothing groundbreaking. But then in between, there's like footage of, of one of them with like a girl and it looks like a grainy snuff film, which is what I like about it. It just looks like a Millie Vanilli snuff film. So. I just I always felt bad for, is it Fab and Patrice? I, I think, think it's Fab yeah. and Patrice. And they even tried to launch a career after this. But I know one of them tried to do a solo career and the guy can sing, but let's be honest, he's got that black cloud over him and people are going to be like, ah, oh, it's fake. I yeah. don't believe it. They won a Grammy for this. Yeah. They won a Grammy and had to send it back. Yeah, I like the uh, Inception sound effects in this song. <laughs> So that wall. If anybody ever comes across the documentary, there was a documentary, I think VH1 put it out. The filming of this music video and then the actual people who did sing this music video. He's a big dude and he's got a hell of a voice, but it was symptomatic of the 90s, especially with dance tunes that were yes, kind of European. CNC Music Factory. CNC, that was my point exactly. They wanted to make sure that the people were necessarily not even singing, but the acts on camera looked sexy yeah. and hot. CNC- the music factory the female vocals were martha wash from the weather girls yeah, from the weather girls and weren't willing to put her out there would have it sold less albums probably not but the thing is though she was already out there because the video for it's rainy men was on mtv in 84 yeah, such an odd choice and, and you feel bad that these people get manipulated and exploited but that's not what this podcast is about so how about you tell us what your number three video is okay we are on episode four of the pool scene podcast so i'm going to keep tradition alive aerosmith loving and ella Living it up as I'm going down. Be quite honest with you, this video, not one of the best of Aerosmith. So in a way, I had to put this on here to keep tradition alive because I think it's fitting because 87 to 93 is a great era of Aerosmith. We don't like, like, neither of us like Aerosmith. You know, I saw Aerosmith once in concert, but that was in 2002. Like, I don't hate Aerosmith. I just, neither one of us are like, yeah, man, Aerosmith. We appreciate their parlance within rock. I mean, they are such a, a quintessential rock band to the point now you possibly have to start comparing them to the Stones in just duration. They're still going. Yeah. It's incredible. But I put this at number three. I had Madonna Like a Prayer at number three, which is a bonkers video. The song itself is about a woman who is in love with God, and he's the only man in her life. But Madonna decided for the video that it would be about a church-going woman who falls in love with a member of the choir. The catch of that is she's a white woman, and she falls in love with a black member of the choir, and this is the South. I don't know if it's supposed to be present day, or I think it's supposed to be in the past, but falls in love with a member of the choir. So the KKK tries to stop them, and I think they might both get shot in this video, but Madonna sings in front of some burning crosses. So the the video itself is just like bonkers. Controversial as hell, man. You're yeah. showing burning crosses on MTV. Yeah. So I, I, if you look at, you know, when we're doing our research, if you look at top music videos for this year, I think they pretty much the consensus is to have Madonna's Like a Prayer is the number one video of, of 89, but not good enough for me. It's only number three. So my number two, everybody tries to do karaoke at least once to, at least tries to do it freestyle without looking at the lyrics. But this video sticks out to 
me. Probably not as much love if you saw the movie Step Brothers because it's late 80s Billy Joel, but it is Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire. There's the lyrics. This lyrics in the song are so indicative of the times that they lived in in 1989, the end of the Cold War. And there's just so many just images just being thrown at you left and right, left and right. You watch this video nowadays, you go on YouTube, you watch it, you're put right back into 1989 because you see the political events and the life events that happened within that time of day. And it's pretty tremendous. It's phenomenal. In my opinion, one of Billy Joel's best songs, you can give him that late 80s moniker of doo-wop bullshit. This isn't Uptown Girl. This is We Didn't Start the Fire. You try to sing along. And I know a lot of you are office fans, much like me. So you always want to sing, Ryan started the fire. So it goes throughout pop culture history. That's why I put this song at numero dos. Fun fact, I hate Billy Joel. I just, there's almost no Billy Joel that I like or even appreciate. He's just the most overrated person to me. But this song also seems lazy. He's just like naming things in a melody. But at speeds, very challenging. I know. It's a karaoke challenge. I refuse to give Billy Joel any credit for anything. <laughs> Number- He's better than the B-52s. I don't think so. Oh, I'll put that to a test. You guys vote for it out there. Number two, I have Aerosmith, but I've got Janie's Got a Gun. Now, this was directed by David Fincher, who directed Seven, Fight Club, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Social Network, and so on, Gone Girl. Uh, and the song is about child abuse, incest, but to me, this kind of represents what the peak of music videos could be. I mean, this looks like a David Fincher film. You know, you got cops on, you know, on the chase, breaking down doors, train tracks, dimly lit. Like, this is a really cool style, like, stylized video. Again, I didn't have to act, I didn't have to, like, you know, pull my hair out to try and fit Aerosmith into this week because as far as I'm concerned, like, this is, I mean, I've got it my number two video. It It's deserving of that. So my number one music video for 1989, that if you heard the song before the music video, you thought, all right, man, these two white guys know how to rock. It's really good. What a hell of a band. It's just a really good sound. You turn on the video, the band is a black rock metal band. It is living color, cult of personality. Now, if you want to see a reaction to somebody who's never heard the song or the video, check out Modern Renaissance Man on YouTube. He never thought that these were black guys, and he's black himself, and he was like, oh my god, this is an amazing rock song, and of course, this song gained popularity once again in 2011 when WWE champion CM Punk used this song as his theme, and it recharted, I believe, into the top 25. This song to this day is one of the perfect songs you get out in your car, pissed off or not pissed off roll down all the windows turn this thing up to 11 it is an amazing rock song with melodies sound bites with kennedy it's this song transcends a lot of generations the thing about this song to me and the video this this song doesn't age it sounds great it sounded great for 25 years it doesn't sound like a song that was made in 89 no it does not sound like a song that was made in 89 it definitely holds up you can still listen to this it's pretty rad uh again i had number one i had smooth criminal we talked about it so why don't we go ahead and go over some of the ones we missed or left out. Another trend you noticed in 89 was that there were a lot of artists doing more than one video in a year or doing multiple videos in a year. You've got Guns N' Roses who did Paradise City and Patience. You had Tom Petty did Won't Back Down and Free Fallen. Paul 
Abdul. Yeah, straight up and forever your girl. And then you had stuff like Fine Young Cannibal. She drives me crazy. Mike and the Mechanics, The Living Years, which is a pool Bob- of dart strings. Bobby Brown, Every Little Step. And you also had On Our Own from the Ghostbusters 2 soundtrack, which we will talk about later on in the season. Skid Row, 18 in life. Winger, 17. Because hair metal was still kind of, you know, hanging on on MTV for sure. Michael Jackson had also had Leave Me Alone, which kind of looked like a Sega game, sort of. You had Martika, Toy Soldiers. I know there's a lot of hatred for that one. Share. If I could turn back time, yeah. Yeah. Janet Jackson, Rhythm Nation, Bangles, Eternal Flame. And then you had Young MC, Busta Move, Antone Look, Funky Cole Medina. There's a song that I think was, it seemed out of place, which is Edie Becquerel and the New Bohemians with What I Am. Yeah. It is such a different sounding song. It doesn't seem like it would be from 89. It seems like a song you would hear, like an alternative song in 1994. Yeah. And I don't think that song ever got enough credit. No, that's that's a great one. And, and I think if I remember correctly, I think it was on Beavis and Butthead. And I think that's where I, I actually heard it for the first time. And we also can't forget about Peter Gabriel's love ballad, In Your Eyes, yeah. from Say Anything. You yes. hold the radio up high and you play that song. This is CNN Breaking News. Hey now, pool seniors. Now, if we were to do this episode now, three years later, I would totally change my number one. My number one song would be Debbie Gibson, Electric Youth. All right, so that's it for this week's music video portion, our pool check. Until next week when we'll discuss five more music videos each. And Jim, you want to let them know? Everybody back in the pool! What the hell is that? Uh, it's Corey's old video game. Found in the back of the pickup truck. I thought the old one was broken. It was. I fixed it. You fixed it? And you just hook it up. You don't ask. It's not like I'm cutting tags off a mattress, Pop. It's just a video game. You want to know, you bought it for him. All right, before we move on to logic, I do want to ask a couple of things. First, what do you think happened to Corey and Haley? Do you think that they drop her back off at her trailer in Reno by herself? This is what I think. Her mom is a degenerate gambler. We don't know if she's alive or if she's dead. Her father seems to be AWOL. No idea. I think, would they have adopted her or would they just not necessarily adopt her but said, hey, you can live with us? I don't think so. Because I don't just see them going, all right, go. Thank you. Don't even know where she's at. Here's ten thousand dollars. Yeah, they don't even know where she's at. I would imagine that they would share some of the fifty thousand with her if we even assume that they gave her some. I, I, now let's think about this fifty thousand cut. Are we just splitting fifty thousand between the three? No, I, I don't think you you would because I think one, I think a parent would have to sign off for this, at least an eighteen year old. So you've got Corey and Jimmy. Jimmy won the tournament. In my opinion, fifty thousand dollars is his to do with what he wants. But you've got Corey who brought him there. Haley is the one responsible for everything. She's the one who showed him a magazine ad. She was the spark. She was the spark, so she deserves a cut. But then you've got two sets of parents. You've got, you know, his mom and stepdad. And I mean, his- let's be honest. Fuck the Batemans. Uh, let's yes. say right now, those two, the mother, the stepdad's a real prick. He's the one who basically wants to ignore Jimmy. He never existed. We're going to throw him in a home, let them deal with it. I don't want to deal with this bullshit, having to watch him. Look, we've been sending this boy here for two years. I think it's 
it's time we started exploring some uh, alternatives. We're thinking about uh, putting him into an institution, a home. And apparently Jimmy just goes on random adventures yeah, by himself. Yeah, the opening of the movie is Jimmy walking down the, the highway just in the middle of nowhere. There are no cops in this movie. Once again, it's another movie where there is no cops. The other thing I wanted to bring up about this movie, I like that this movie would be difficult to remake. I like that with now everything gets remade or everything gets reimagined. And obviously this made $14 million. So it wasn't, you know, some blockbuster that's beloved. I, I think that there definitely is a place in pop culture for this movie but it's a movie that in order for this to be remade that there would have to be so many changes it would be awful it would be either has the dream of being a twitch streamer he's the best call of duty Warzone player on the planet it'd be garbage it would and and there's no way that you'd you know be able to be self-sufficient enough to hitchhike across the country it's just this is a perfect movie for 1989 you know probably somewhere between 85 and 95 this kind of movie could happen perfect for nintendo it yes. was the height of the NES. I just don't know why they made it so dark for a Nintendo, like essentially a Nintendo commercial. Part of the legacy of this movie, I'll say, is it sounds like Nintendo kind of swore that they would never have involvement in a movie again after this movie. And I don't know if that's because it didn't do so well financially or because they were just kind of like, we can't have these sensitive subjects broached. I have a question. Let me know what you think, even everybody out there listening. Do you think this movie was already made? Nintendo said, hey, this would be a good vehicle to debut Super Mario 3 or what I think Super Mario 3 was like, Nintendo's like, how can we just throw Super Mario 3 in a movie? Oh, this movie's in pre-production or kids? Hey, director, writer, try to fit this in yeah, somewhere. Yeah, I think that's probably something we have to research but I can't imagine this movie doesn't happen without I mean the whole point of this movie it either was written or rewritten to culminate with Mario 3 mm -hmm. the whole point of this movie essentially is to introduce Mario 3 Super Mario Brothers 3 it's an introduction to Mario 3 that's also encapsulated around mental health issues, whether it be PTSD or possible autism. Okay, so that's a good transition. Let's get into logic. It all could have been different, Mr. Walker. You should have allowed nature to take its course. So before, so Jimmy's sister died two years prior. And she drowned. It sounds as though Jimmy has ever since then been in and out of this mental institution, whatever you want to call and Jimmy, it. And Jimmy, I believe they said when they were at the drive-in that Jimmy was there when she died, when he she was. drowned. Yes. And he couldn't help her. Right. She was his twin sister. They got down by the river. Jimmy and Somehow Jennifer got too close. Jimmy couldn't swim, so he was afraid. But it was weird. She didn't go downstream at all. She just died a few feet of water right in front of her. It was really hard for Jimmy. So they call him handicapped. They call him a mental case. They call him a space case. I mean, everything kind of short of the R word in this movie. But what the point I want to make is we don't see Jimmy before his sister died. And the way that I think this movie is directed and shown is we are to assume that up until Jimmy's sister died, he was not like this. Well, you see in that big picture that he leaves at that dinosaur enclosure statue, he's smiling. It's He's there with with Corey, Nick, Sam, and his mom, and Jennifer. They're all happy. So we can assume he was a normal kid. Okay, so then that... 
checks out as far as, you know, for calling this PTSD then, because I tend to believe, again, this is sort of like a kid's version of Rain Man. I don't really remember in 1989 how much talk there was of autism. Well, remember in the movie Rain Man, they thought he was artistic. And he's like, no, it's not artistic. It was autistic. Yeah. It was new. Yeah, it was new, but there was autism. And sometimes, unfortunately, it was called idiot savant. Jimmy definitely has a lot of those tendencies. You know, he's for many stretches of the movie, he's nonverbal. He's very good at one thing. He's so he seems to be very smart. So I would think, you know, he's probably on the autism spectrum. But anyhow, so they act like he wasn't like this until his sister died. And then he got PTSD and he can't deal with it. And he just wanted closure with, with his sister's death. So he wants to take her photos to the dinosaurs in California, which is why he says California, California. That's, and apparently that's all he has said when he's in the institution is California, California. That's it. And no one knows what he's talking about. My question is, once Jimmy puts these pictures back in this dinosaur, are we to assume that he's just, I hate to use the word normal, but is he just back to normal? I think it would be an ongoing process because remember throughout this film, we have no idea what's in that lunchbox until they are basically wrangled by a bunch of arcade thugs at the drive-in. Even Corey had no idea what was in the lunchbox and then it's like, oh, it's pictures of my sister Jennifer. There's a pair of her shoes. Jimmy's quest was, that was his sense of closure. Now, do I think he would be completely cured? No, but you have to remember, in the truck ride back in which they awkwardly sit, Jimmy pulls down on the hat and you could see him laughing. So I think that was the point one where he started to come back around again. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, like you said, I think he probably needs more therapy to deal with this. He saw his sister die. I mean, that's not easy. I think he's nine years old, so not an easy thing to deal with, but I think this is definitely the first step in healing. Interesting, but you brought up something else. Another huge logic issue to me, which is why is this movie so dark? Why is the un like the universe that they live in in the wizard? They get robbed twice by the apparent truckers in the cow truck. They get robbed there, even though Haley said, I know truckers. And then they get robbed by the arcade thugs. Yeah, they hustle kids at the arcade for 20 bucks. Somehow, another logic issue, somehow the kids from the arcade find them as they're sleeping in what's, I think, an abandoned drive-in. It's an abandoned drive-in in loose quotes because there are still three big multi-thousand dollar projectors just in there with a ransacked film slash concession area. Yeah, so the, somehow the the arcade thugs lowjacked them and understand where they're at because this is the second time. And the first time they get robbed when they're in the back of the cow truck, all it takes is for the driver to look over his shoulder... <laughs> And see Haley fanning out money. Yes. See Haley counting her money. And it's just like they have no conscience be where they can like help themselves. It's just like, hey, man, pull over. They got money. We got to rob them. They just can't help themselves. Plus, Haley tries to put up a fight and it is the worst form of hammer fists to the back of the older gentleman's back. And while we were rewatching it, why does Haley not just kick the guy in the balls? But then again, they're out in the middle 
middle of nowhere. Where were they going to run to? So last week during our pool check, we talked about Over the Top a little bit. And this movie, in my opinion, has like some similarities to Over the Top. Uh, one is just the amount of times that children find themselves in a bar or casino, which also happens in Over the Top. It, it's just impl- implausible. I mean, there's no cops or authority figures that are like... There's nobody checking a door and go ID or look at a kid and go, you can't come in here. Yeah, like, And she even gets kicked out. Her and Corey and Jimmy get kicked out of the casino after they were yelling across the casino at Spanky about craps because she knows how to play craps, well, apparently. I think it's after they get robbed. They're in a city and Corey's giving Haley like all kinds of hell because he's like, where are we? We have no money. We're broke. They wander into a literal bar. The bar has like a video game section that you'd see at like a truck stop or maybe in the 80s, like a little game room. And there's these like suit and tie businessmen. Definitely in their late 50s. Yeah, playing Mario, Mario 1 on a non-play choice cabinet or not even a versus Mario Brothers cabinet. Yeah, so they've got some weird cab where they're playing Mario 1 and then Corey and Haley, or I should say Jimmy, is ultimately the one, you know, they hustle these businessmen. But it's like, what are they doing in a bar in the first place? Not bad. Not bad. Thanks. You got some skill. Some? What do you mean, some? Oh, my softness. Not challenge. No, my brother over here. He could beat you. <laughs> Go on. You're a monster, Jimmy. You snaked him. Didn't he snake him? Look at him. He's smiling. You like this, Jimmy, don't you? Also, the tremendous thing, after they hustle those guys, they proceed to walk in near twilight down the middle of a highway, and somehow Haley knows, hey, there's this junkyard nearby. We can sleep here at the junkyard. Well, that leads me to another logic point that I have, and I want to get into your logic points as well, but is how do these kids have such good survival skills? Before they hook up with Haley, there's a scene where we see Corey and Jimmy like in a mountain or on a mountain. They've built a fire there's coyotes howling in the They're background camping out and it's snakes. like what why are we led to believe that these kids are able to do this you also brought up the fact of over the top one thing in this movie that is a nice little easter egg to over the top spanky Haley's trucker best friend which somehow she has a trucker best friend in his late 40s drives a truck that if you look real quick when the truckers apprehend putnam when he has jimmy you look at the door, it says Hawk Hauling, and it's the same truck that Sylvester Stallone used in the movie Over the Top, filmed two years prior. It's, it's a nice Easter egg. I wish I had that truck myself right now. I wish I just had the Hawk on the hood. That'd be pretty sweet yeah. to have. I want the whole truck to park it in my driveway. I will say uh, one last thing I have. I know there's a big one we want to talk about with Mario 3 at Video Armageddon. Why are his dad and brother and the bounty hunter chasing them? I, I know the literal answer is because they're trying to find Jimmy and bring him back. How do they know where they're going? I know that Jimmy says California all the time. So is it just like he says California all the time? He's got to be going to California. But they never specify where in California. No. California is a big ass San Francisco. State. Does he want to go to Big Sur? Does yeah, he is he going to go skiing? Does he want to go to San Diego? Yeah, like where in California? Two, the dad and brother and the bounty hunter are always like, one step behind. They're always in the exact same place that 
the kids just were maybe a day prior. And to me, you don't really ever get that scene where you get a scene where the bounty hunter interviews a kid and the kid's like, even if I knew where they were, I wouldn't tell you. There's nothing that leads me to believe that, you know, that like he finds a kid and the kid's like, oh yeah, they were in here yesterday. They went that way. It's just like, there's no sense of direction. A kid never goes, hey, he's went in there. The only time there is a confirmed spot in which they know where to go is when they run into Lucas at his yes. diner, Sam and Nick. One of the arcade thugs stole Corey's Woods landscaping hat. Yeah. And he wore it. Nick and Sam approach him. Where'd you get this? And Sam's about ready to rough him up because basically this kid who, let's be honest, this arcade thug he isn't playing with a full deck. He proceeds to get lippy. Looks like Sam's going to punch him. And then Lucas is at the counter and go, hey, I know where they're going. And he reveals the ad saying video arm again, Los Angeles, California. I have a hard, I'm a snob, so I have a hard time letting go of just you know that it's a movie explanation because the odds that that kid would be in that diner at the time that they're there not just in there but also still wearing the woods construction hat or woods landscaping and they spot it is just like mind-boggling to me even because stuff like this in movies is pretty easy to correct all we need is the bounty hunter to talk to one kid who specifically says yes they're going from arcade to arcade hustling people they were here yesterday you know the next arcade is there or it doesn't even have to be that explained. And then the Woods family, so dad and brother, all they have to do was just follow the bounty hunter. And that explains it. But instead, we get like no exposition, nothing to explain how the bounty hunter and the dad and brother are always just always able to find them. So let's go on to my logic. So kick your feet up, folks. I got uh, some good ones here for you. You're going to be gaming centric logic questions. But before I get into those, I'm going to start at the very beginning of the movie. Jimmy is at this in institution in Utah. Even though they say he should be institutionalized, he's already there. He's sitting in a room while his stepdad and his mom, well, basically his stepdad is throwing a shit fit. He's building something with these, I wouldn't say Legos, they're Duplos. They're they're the bigger Lego, the Duplos. I don't know if Duplos are still around, but that's what they are. And it looks like three big TV screens. You're like, oh, what could that be? Fast forward to the drive-in later on in the movie, he takes popcorn baskets, like these popcorn things. You go to the movie theaters, you get these big like rhombus size half rhombus size popcorn containers he's making the three big tv screens again fast forward to the video game contest video armageddon which the name in itself makes no sense because it basically says video end of the world that's it there's not going to be a day after this it's video armageddon when they reveal when it's jimmy lucas and Mora Grissom, they lift up the this door and it's revealed that there are three television screens. So somehow, some way, Jimmy transcended time and space. He apparently is the doctor from Doctor Who. We didn't know it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey. Stuff. He somehow knew that his final destination, even though he had no idea there was going to be video gaming involved, would consist of three big movie screens to play a video game on. Now, they didn't explain it, but I will potentially give benefit of the doubt on this one, because what if, and you got to bear with me here, what if 
in the mental institution. Jimmy's given magazines to read and he sees that video Armageddon ad and maybe they had a layout of the stage, but he's nonverbal. So therefore he doesn't tell anyone. I mean, again, a stretch, maybe something you see in the two and a half hour cut because it's more plausible. Again, how, how does he get so good at video games? We don't even know that. It appears in an institution and video games would be something good for like mental building, hand eye coordination, yeah. something to keep focused on. But playing off your point, how would they know to do something like that? Because the set wouldn't have been built unless there was a year round competition where he, like you said, could have came across the, a thing and they were showing video Armageddon highlights from the 1988 contest. So that's possible too. I mean, it's a stretch, but it's possible. It's a stretch. I, I like that explanation better than he telepathically knows and sees himself like he's Bran Stark from Game of Thrones. Like he just knows he's going to be a video Armageddon. I, I don't like that. So it's a stretch, but it's a better explanation in my opinion than the actual thing because you got to remember they don't really ask Jimmy's permission to take him to video Armageddon. Essentially, Corey and Haley are using him in a way and just say, we're going to take him to video Armageddon because he can win without ever really asking like, hey, is this something you want to do? But then when they get jumped by the bullies at the drive-in, he, you know, they're, Corey's getting real mad at him and Haley's ready to give up. And Jimmy actually speaks up and says, I don't want to give up. Where are you going? I'm going to go find a telephone and call my dad. You're quitting? You can't quit. Not now. Look, the contest is in three days. He hasn't even half the games. Look at this. I mean, look at him. It's over, Haley. You're a quitter, Corey. And I don't care if you did like me. Your attitude sucks. You wanted me to like you? Not anymore. Great. Corey, I don't want to quit. You're right about that, though. Then again, Jimmy could have found his way back because we know that Jimmy's a wanderer. Yeah. And he goes round and round and round like Dion. So that was an old throwback song for you right there. Check out Dion. My next <laughs> logic issue. All right, let's get into the crux of this, folks. This movie is a homage to Nintendo. Now let's get into some of the gaming issues, everybody. As I mentioned earlier on in this show, Jimmy starts playing Double Dragon. And all of a sudden, in 40 seconds, we timed it, he scores 50,000 points on Double Dragon in 40 seconds. First off, that's impossible. Second, when he starts up the game, it's the wrong music. So right off the bat, wrong. Next scene when they're in the diner. He's playing Ninja Gaiden, and Haley says, look, he's never even taken a hit and he's on his next life screen clearly shows that he's been hit twice let's go to another one well kevin said it earlier when it comes to lucas and rad racer the sound doesn't match up to where he would be in the game he's not even using the power glove correctly also another hidden special easter egg is when lucas powers up the power glove the five notes you hear are from the five notes from Close Encounters of the First Kind. Third Kind. Close Encounters of the Third... What did I say? First Kind? First Kind. Yeah. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The First Kind was not the good movie. It's the third <laughs> movie in the trilogy that was better, but it's the jingle that they communicated to the alien spaceship yeah. with. So that's a nice little Easter egg. Later 
on, we get to the fact where Haley's calling the tip line. This is the one I really want to get into. This makes no sense because these tip lines were one nine hundred numbers. They were yes. always one nine hundred numbers. Kevin and I are wrestling fans. I can remember being a WCW fan, and if you wanted to call the tip line, it was one nine hundred nine oh nine ninety nine hundred. Straight up with Sting, Lex Luger, the Jim Ross Report, Missy Hyatt, one nine hundred nine oh nine ninety nine hundred. The Wrestling Hotline, your main line to the stars. $2 first minute, 45 cents each additional minute. Kids 18 and under obtain your parents' permission before calling. 1-900-909-9900. All yeah. tip lines back then. They were 99 cents, $1.99 a yeah. minute. How the hell is Haley racking up a phone bill? Well, I'll go further than that. Before you jump into that real quick, before I forget this thought. Yes, I get the fact that Spanky won $400 on craps and she only gave Spanky 10 bucks, which is bullshit. Sure. He did the work. So you're thinking, okay, they're in that Reno hotel. They have three hundred and ninety dollars at their expense expense we don't know how long they stayed in that hotel but you figure 99 cents a minute when you see the scene near the end of the tip line one he has these binders stacked up you got to think that's got to be a couple hundred dollars on that phone bill so right off the bat they're sitting by the pool they're ordering food they're getting drinks poolside they're ordering stupid those uh those party favor glasses with the nose and the mustache where you look like gene shallot so before you get too far away from it are we to assume that spanky procured the room for them because how I don't know what the policy is for allowing children to reserve a hotel room. See, I don't think he did because remember, they were all kicked out of the bar and one of the bouncers said, you can't let kids gamble for you. And they kicked him out and she handed him a 10 said, thanks Spanky like a dismissal. I can remember having hotel parties at like 18 or 19 years old and if you were under 21, you had to put a security deposit down that you'd get back after you checked out because of your age. But these kids aren't even 18, 19. They're 13. So they're checked into a room at a Reno hotel racking up 99 cent a minute tip lines. Another thing that doesn't make sense with the tip line is the fact that the first game, the guy's like, all right, what do you want to start with? And she's like, I want to start with Simon's Quest. Yeah, they would never play that game. First of all, they would never play that game in a championship arena or a condition just because there's no points involved. You can't really accrue anything in Castlevania. It makes no sense. Now I get the fact you're probably like, well, Jim, they said Lucas knows all 97 games. They're not going to play 97 games at Video Armageddon. They're going to play point-based games only. That's it. So there's a lot of games that make no sense. And you can see at Video Armageddon, they play Ninja Gaiden during the preliminary rounds. You never see Castlevania 2, which makes no sense. We get to Video Armageddon. During the finals of Super Mario Brothers 3, there are so many scoring inconsistencies. If you look at the small screen that it's right in front of them, doesn't match up to the big screen. There are so many point discrepancies. Like all of a sudden, Jimmy loses a guy, he loses 18,000 points, immediately comes back. Every time the announcer announces a score, doesn't matter match up with what's on the screen and the biggest one there's so many more but i'm gonna cut to the chase the biggest one this was the debut of super mario brothers 3 there is no way in hell that jimmy woods as great as he is at video games would know where the warp whistles are in that game and there is no way the warp whistles would give you that many points in super mario brothers 3 we'd have to break
break it out, but I'm pretty sure that just for warping, you don't get any points. There's no points. In later levels, do you get more points for doing the same things? No. Well, getting the star at the end of the level, you get more points, yeah. but you don't get that many points. No, he's like 4,000 points behind with one second left on the clock, and he wins. And it's, you know, things like this in movies, I just don't understand why they just don't hire a continuity manager. You know, any movie that's got some sort of ticking clock, sports movies, you know, in football games where it's really hard to shoot because of, you know, yardage and scoreboards and, and keeping all that, but you just hire a continuity manager. Now this, I would imagine the lines were in the script a certain way, and it was just hard to get what was on the screens to match what was on in the script. So also real quick, my last bit of logic, when Jimmy's brushing up at the Reno Hotel down in the arcade area, there is a child who is working as a concession server dressed up almost like a chambermaid walking <laughs> around selling candies and popcorn and Corey gives her a tip and basically calls her toots. Yeah. What kind of fucking hotel lets kids come in and gamble, then they enforce it, get a hotel room, and then work under child labor conditions? Yeah, it's that's my logic, folks. A lot of logic in this one. If you really want to break it down, let's move on to Legacy. I don't think we have a lot. I will say Legacy this Mario 3 became the highest selling Nintendo game to not be paired with a console. So it sold like 18 million copies off the back of this movie, which is surprising because nobody saw the movie. So it makes me think the game was going to sell 18 million copies, probably whether they included it in this movie or not. Then again, with them including this in the movie, and you have to remember everybody, this is before the age of the internet. So everything was basically broadcast through magazines. Game Pro Magazine, Electronic Gaming Monthly Magazine brought up the fact that Super Mario 3 is in this movie. The home video sales for this and rental sales were amazing for this because people wanted to see Super Mario 3 because you have to remember it didn't come out for another two months after this movie was released. I guarantee you get Mario 3 and go, oh, I want to watch the Mario movie because as a kid, I called this the Mario 3 movie. Yeah, I will say that they, you know, another legacy is Nintendo pulled their involvement in movies probably due to this and, you know, weren't comfortable moving forward and allowing their games to be featured and other things. I mean, look at what we have in this movie. We have Child abandonment issues. We have child death in this movie. We have possible sexual predatory issues with Putnam the Bounty Hunter, which is real creepy. There's he grabbed my breast. He touched my breast! What the hell are you doing? No! I, no, I, I didn't touch anything! I touched her breast. She doesn't have any breasts weird, creepy shit that I could totally understand why Nintendo probably thought this will be a nice family movie. Like, in the end, we don't know what the hell happened to this family. No, and it's so strange because they don't have to do that. I say this with, like, every movie every week. Like, they could have made a movie that revolved around Video Armageddon, revolved around Mario 3, and had none of these issues. I mean, there it could have just been, like, I can't think of one off the top of my, my head, but a family road trip movie, a bunch of high hijinks happen you know they could run into lucas still they could run into mora whoever and then like they find out that jimmy is really good at video games and as a family they go wait there's this big contest he can come in let's see what this kid's worth and they do little stops say around route 66 yeah it's sort of like you know? a national lampoons movie where they it's could have like, done something like that and you know, the payoff is 
Mario 3, and then he wins it all in the end, and it brings the family even more closer together. Yes, and but instead, they went super dark. It's a little odd for who the demographic was and, and what the payoff is, which is a basically not a, a commercial for Nintendo, but also a commercial for Universal Studios, because that's where Video Armageddon takes place. You essentially get, you know, a shitty five-cent tour of the park. During you get the King Kong ride in the movie, too, so in case you weren't there, now you feel like you were. I don't really have anything else for the legacy. Anything else you want to touch on? There's not really any legacy. Like I said, this is known as the Mario movie. It's If you looked at somebody right now, and I know a lot of you listening to this will be like, what's the one thing you think of the wizard? The power glove. It's so bad. Yeah. And also, you want to talk about a legacy to this movie? The kid who plays Lucas, Jackie Vinson, is now on another infamous list. He got arrested for being a sexual predator. Yeah, that's that's some legacy. But first, stick around for some plugs. Cool Sceners, once again, thank you for listening to this episode of the show and all of the other ones in our back catalog. And you can find those on Apple, Spotify, Podbean, Podbay, and wherever you get your podcast from because we are there. And never forget to like comment, subscribe, rate, and follow on Facebook. Join the Pool Sceners group for exclusive content. You will get it there first. Instagram, Twitch, Threads, TikTok, and YouTube at Pool Scene Podcast. We are all over the place, so you will never get one opportunity to miss us anytime, anywhere. And as always... Back to Kevin. Hey, Final Lap Guy, since you don't have a real name, I heard you've been telling people your name is Final Lap Guy Jr. Yeah! The Final Lap! Let me tell you what drink pairs well with this movie. Now, I've got two to pick from. Rockadile Red or Sharkleberry Finn Kool-Aid because I don't have an alcoholic beverage with this movie. I want to drink some Kool-Aid. It makes me think of 1989. I was drinking Kool-Aid. I had a Kool-Aid mustache. So let me give you the instructions for how to make Kool-Aid. You get yourself a large pitcher. Really? We're doing instructions for Kool-Aid? Yes, you have to. (laughs) If I'm given a drink recipe... You get yourself uh, a large pitcher or jug. You pour one cup of sugar or sugar substitute, like Splenda, if that's how you roll. You pour it into the pitcher, and then you get your pouch of Kool-Aid. Now, I know that they sell the Sharkleberry Finn and the Rockadile Red in, like, pouches now. They have these Kool-Aid retro juice box things. But if you can still get yourself a packet of Rockadile Red or Sharkleberry Finn, you tear the packet open, you add the one pouch on top of the one cup of sugar, and then you fill it up to quarts of cold water or if you want to use ice if you want to drink it immediately and a pro tip a kool-aid pro tip is after you add the kool-aid packet when you're ready to add water fill that empty kool-aid pouch with water and pour it into the pitcher until that pouch runs clear that way you're getting every molecule of kool-aid power All right, I have two, and they're not mixed drinks. At this time in 1989, my mom would love to shop at Farmore. Now, Farmore was a regional, like, grocery-type chain. At Farmore, that was the only place where you can get Jolt Cola. Yeah. Now, Jolt Cola was a parent's nightmare. That shit, as a kid, would keep you up all night to play Mario 3. So, for me, it was Jolt Cola, and if my mom needed to save money on groceries, we wouldn't get Coca-Cola or Pepsi. She would get either RC Cola, nice. Royal Crown Cola, or... 
for Shasta Cola. Oh, yeah. Shasta Cola was my shit. Not to go too far off topic, but I think about those sleepovers when I was a kid. You'd go to the to the video store. You'd rent yourself a game, whether it be Farmore or wherever. You would rent yourself a video game and you'd want to play it. Even if it was a dud, you'd want to play it because you rented it. Because it depends on how much your mom spends. She'd do a one night, two night or three night yeah. rental. So if you had a friend over, I remember being a kid and staying up until like three, four, five in the morning. Our house wasn't that big. And like, God bless my parents for putting up with that because we had to have been loud and just being like inappropriate kids playing video games till three or four a.m. Plus, you got to remember, guys, there were no save states in video games back then. You either played the game to completion or you went to bed. You kept your Nintendo on all night and hope to hell the power didn't go out or the Nintendo didn't freeze. Yeah. Or or you had a game like uh, Tyson's Punch Out, which had, you know, like a code you the could codes. put in to return. So, all right, that just about does it. We're not going to go ahead and tell you what's next week yet because we do have some things on the horizon, some different things, some exciting things, and you will find out about those soon enough at all the sources that Jim just gave you. Wait a second. I'm in the six panels of higher Yeah. I got past the river devil. What the hell are you doing? I had the magic key. I got the cross. I was closing on the barbarian. So until next time, I'm Kevin Bradway with Jim Sabella. Bye-bye. This is the Pool Scene Podcast. See the call.